This morning, we want to turn to Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We'll be reading through Colossians 3, verse 4. Hear God's word for you and for me. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, and the construction there is really since, since, or if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Today I want to ask, where is the power in the Christian life? I want to talk about two vastly different ways to live the Christian life. One has been a very popular way for the last 2,000 years. The other is a Pauline way. The first popular way to live the Christian life is external conformity to rules and regulations. And before getting into the weeds here in Colossians, let me sketch a little bit of modern American church history, starting with the mid-1970s. You see, in the mid-1970s, with the founding of Willow Creek Church in Chicago, founded in 1975, and in the early 1980s, with the founding of Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, 1980, both churches were the early forerunners of the megachurch movement, often toppling 15 and 20,000 members in attendance. The baby boomer Christians, a certain segment at least, arrived on the scene with a vision to completely reimagine how we do church. And central to this vision was throwing out and react against all the traditional forms of worship. The Gloria Patri, gone. Doxology, gone. Organs, gone. Hymnals, come on now. Some of you remember with not so great a deal of fondness, the so-called worship wars of the mid-1980s and early 1990s. 
For some churches, putting a simple screen in the sanctuary represented a miracle and an act of God himself, right? But beneath the surface of the music, there was also a reaction against the legalism of previous generations. Don't do this. Don't do that. Or as my youth pastor was fond of saying, rather tongue-in-cheek, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. And so he was a very grace... Do I have time for a rabbit trail? My youth pastor actually graduated from uh, Bob Jones University, one of those bastions of very legalistic, conservative, baptistic Christianity. And when I was a a naive 15 or 16-year-old, his wife Kathy actually told us this story about every month the men and the women of this college would get together in a hall. And mind you, these are college students. They would have chaperones back in the 1960s. And so uh, uh, as it came to pass, Kathy was saying that one night a big thunderstorm was in the area and lo and behold, all the lights went out right in the time the men and the women were in this hall together. And to her, and I was quite surprised, and she said the, uh, the, uh, the, chaperone, the women chaperones went around pleading to the girls, clap your hands and whistle, clap your hands and whistle, clap your hands and whistle. And I said, in my naivete, you didn't. And she goes, we did. <laughs> and so you see like that, that legalism never really works. It never really stops us in indulging in the flesh, as Paul will go on to say. And so the prohibitions and legalism of early generations graded against some of these boomer baby baby leaders. And so you'd think that this non-denominational, attractional megachurch movement that continues full steam ahead for decades later after the founding of Willow Creek and Saddleback Church would be the last place, the absolute last place you would expect to find vestiges of legalism of the earlier generations. Whereas earlier generations focused on what uh, do, do not do, many of these churches, these megachurch, attractional churches, often specialize in what to do by giving you lots of positive self-help advice. How to win with your finances. Nine ways to cope with stress and anxiety. Seven positive ways to have healthier relationships. In fact, I've heard of one mega church pastor that circles precisely those three themes around his church every three years because he knows that's what connects with our suburban culture in America. And so the positive life coach from the stage who gives you feel-good messages has often replaced the preacher of the Bible if not all, in many of the iterations of the attractional megachurch movement. So again, you would think that this would be the last place you'd expect to find legalism. That is, an external conformity to rules to live out the Christian life. Not so fast. Legalism often rears its head in surprising ways and in quite unexpected places. 
This is what Jared Wilson notices in a book I'm reading with our own church staff. It's there in the bulletin for you to follow along. This is what he says. The attractional, or you could substitute mega church. The attractional church leaders rightly reject this negative understanding of how to grow in holiness, which focuses on what to avoid rather than on what to do. Instead, they opted for something more positive. This is why much of the attractional teaching is preoccupied with how-to messages, which are admittedly drawn from the Bible. But the application-heavy approach of the attractional model fails to address that while the negative prohibitive law is powerless to change people, the positive prescriptive law is equally powerless. So whether you are prohibiting negatively or commanding Positively, the law of God cannot change a single human heart to honor God. Only the grace of God can do that. Because do and don't are simply two sides of the same law coin. By trading one for the other, the attractional church simply gave legalism a makeover. The attractional approach only increased the danger of legalism. Since the old kind of legalism is much easier to spot. Clap your hands and whistle. Clap your hands and whistle, right? Much less attractive and much clumsier at getting us to follow along. The new legalism is clandestine, difficult to spot. The attractional model has fooled us into thinking it offers innovation, when in reality it's just grandfather's old church of legalism with a fresh coat of paint. My apologies to grandfathers in the room. He says this, Pragmatic methodology is legalistic because legalism is what happens when you disconnect the Christian dues from Christ's done in the gospel. And so whether focusing on what not to do, the negative prohibitions, or focusing on what to do, positive prescriptions, it's all a form of legalism which focuses on rules or self-help or great ideas to do in the world which doesn't have the power to change a life. You see, the law never gives you the Spirit's gospel transformative power to change. And so before getting into the weeds here in Colossians, end of chapter 2 and 3, let me get the flow of thought here in this, these sections. First, Paul goes... From 16 to 23, he starts beginning the empty promises of false growth. How can we grow? Where is the power in the Christian life? Well, some false teachers are saying legalism, worship of angels, harsh treatment of the body. And Paul wants to say that is always a dead end. They never have the power to change you eternally and with significance. He then goes on in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, giving us the only way to last, to lasting change, our union with Christ. You have been united with Christ. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Because only when you understand your union with Christ can you then say, oh, and as Paul will go on to say, here are some things you should put off Here's some things that you shouldn't do. Here's some things you should put on. You should clothe yourself with Christ. 
Only when you understand your union with Christ can you then say, let the full imperatives of the Gospel come raining down on my life. Because only when you get and understand deeply your union with Christ can you really say, oh, now I'm ready to change. Lord, give me ways to reform my behavior, my thinking, my way of life. Because if you first understand your union with Christ, then and only then will you have the Spirit's power to help you live out the Christian life. But I get ahead a bit of myself. So in Colossians 2, 16-23, Paul recognizes the prevalence and the shortcomings of both negative and positive forms of legalism. He talks about diet and days. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. From 8 o'clock, Ken Farson came up to me and he said, my Baptistic church with its legalism never read to me verse 16, right? Let no one pass judgment on you with regard to these diet and these days. And here we really should be asking, were the false teachers in Colossae actually suggesting that these New Testament Christians return to the dietary food laws of the Old Testament. Look at verse 21. Teachers seem to be giving lots of negative, legalistic prohibitions. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Paul knew that that's not the essence of Christianity. But on the positive side, too, they seem to be prescribing a return to the celebration of annual and monthly and weekly observances as found in the Old Testament. The annual Jewish festivals such as Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, as well as a new monthly moon celebration, which is first alluded to in the book of Acts, which actually prescribes that a family, the first side of the moon, come to the temple to offer burnt sacrifices. Do you think that Paul would have a problem with that? of us going back and offering more sacrifices after the final sacrifice of Jesus the Lamb on Passover for our behalf? You bet. And then also the weekly celebration of the Sabbath. So it seems like these teachers are saying, if you want the fullness of life, you have to go back and practice these annual, and these monthly, and these weekly celebrations, all of which add to Christ. But Paul knew that the food and the festivals were already fulfilled in Christ. They were a shadow where Christ was the reality. Christ was the substance casting a shadow behind him over the entire Old Testament. And so you think about a shadow. It has no independent reality, no independent substance of itself. The reality is what casts the shadow, which is in this case, Christ. Christ is the reality. Christ is the substance. Christ is the fullness. We only grow in Him. And so Paul could say, obey the food laws. Haven't you read John chapter 6? Jesus is the bread that came down out of heaven. Celebrate the Jewish Passover. Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Celebrating the Sabbath is a bit more complex, but does not Jesus say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and who? And I will give you rest. Not a day, not a Sabbath, not some spiritual program or ten steps of to find 
peace. Christ will give you rest. Christ will give you nourishment. And Christ will give you joy. He is the fulfillment of all these exuberant festivals of the Old Testament. But at some point I wonder whether these Colossian Christians said the same things that we say today. What's the deal with the Christian life? I still struggle in sin. I still am stressed and anxious and worried. I still have trouble finding joy and peace in life. And then we begin to think, well, maybe some external rules and regulations can help me out. Maybe if I try some positive, prescriptive spiritual program, it might whip me up into shape. Look at verse 23. Paul says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of what? No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are empty promises. They have no value in defeating sin and ultimately no value in bringing us joy. So Paul is saying that external adherence to rules, whether positive or negative, has no power to change you. But then what does? The beginning of chapter 3, Paul gets into the basics of the Christian life and Christian growth. You might have heard the story of Jack Nicholas. Jack Nicholas, when he was at the height of his powers and prowess as a golfer, winning 18 golf championships, he had a habit. He used to meet with his old golf coach on the practice greens the day before the PGA Championship. And he would meet with his old golf coach and he would ask his golf coach, Coach, teach me how to play golf. Jack Nicholas knew that if he got the basics right, he could soar on the heights. He knew if his swing had the fundamentals and the basics he got down, then he would have lots of opportunity for victory on the course. This is what union with Christ language is all about for Paul. If you get this, you can go on to maturity. If you get this, you can have victory over sin. If you get this, you can win 18 major championships. Is that a little overreach? Just a little, a little, over, a little overreach. You might have, remember a couple weeks ago I shared 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is Paul speaking about himself. What does he say? He says, I know a man in Christ. Jesus' favorite self-designation, the way Jesus loved to talk to, about himself was he called himself the Son of Man. Paul's favorite way to speak about himself was to say, I know a man in Christ. In fact, you could say that this was Paul's favorite designation of anyone and anybody who calls himself a Christian. I know a man. I know a woman in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul literally says, if any in Christ, new creation. You get a new identity, new adoption into a new family, new power of the Holy Spirit working and living in you. You are united to Christ and therefore a new creation. Teach me how to play golf, said Jack Nicholas. Teach me the essence of Christianity. And Paul would probably tell you, you are united to Christ. Christ is in you and living in you and you are united to Christ. One of my favorite stories is that of John 
Kronstadt. He was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest. At a time when alcohol abuse was rampant. None of the priests ventured out of the churches to help the people. They waited for the people rather to come to him. But John, this priest, compelled by love, went out into the streets. People would say that he would lift the the hungover, foul-smelling people from the gutter, cradle them in his arms and tell them and look them in his eye and say, you are beneath this. You are meant to house the fullness of God. In other words, you have been united to Christ. This is who you are. One of the very first Bible verses I memorized as a young man. 14 or 15 years of age was Galatians 2, verse 22. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live by by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And what I didn't recognize at the time was that Paul is talking about our union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Five words in English expresses one word in the Greek. The son is the preposition that, with, that means with or together with. And Paul actually attaches this preposition with to the main verb. So the verb could actually be translated co-crucified. I have been co-crucified with Christ. Union with Christ is probably the most important doctrine you've never heard about. Over 200 times in Paul, more than two dozen times in John's writings, we come across expressions like in Christ, in Him, with Christ, in the Lord. Just look at the book of Colossians that we've been reading this summer. We have faith in Christ. We walk in Christ. We have this mystery which is Christ in you. We are made fully mature in Christ. In Christ we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are rooted and built up in Him. We are filled in Him and made alive with Him. And that's just the first two chapters of Colossians. And so do you get where the power is in the Christian life? Apart from this union with Christ, all the blessings of the Gospel would be outside of us. Apart from this union with Christ, all the power of the Spirit would be external to us. Apart from this union with Christ, all the imperative commands of the Gospel, do this or don't do that, would be outside of us. And thus, we'd never have the power to truly obey them. But since we are united to Christ and Christ, what does He Christ long to do? Christ longs to obey the Father out of love with great joy and perfect Obedience. And so this Christ lives in us. We are united to Him. We too can obey the Father out of love with joy and obedience, putting off sin and putting on the holiness of Christ. And so in Colossians 3, Paul lays down a profound, profound truth. Just like in Galatians where he says we are co-crucified with Christ Here in Colossians 3, he uses the same construction. If then you have been raised with Christ, co-raised, co-resurrected with Christ. Paul says you've been co-crucified and co-resurrected with Christ. What does that mean? It means that you've been made dead to sin and alive to God. 
That's why you've been crucified. That's why you've been raised. Even though we in the church today, we often prefer to speak in a different language. We say, be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? That was a big thing. Like what, 15 years ago? What would Jesus do? As if Jesus, our example, is the whole secret sauce to the Christian life. Yet Paul more often will say, it's not Jesus and you. Replace the conjunction with a preposition. It's more Christ Jesus in you. That's how you grow in the Christian life. Christ is in you, is more powerful, able to resist sin and live for God than the Jesus by you. Yes, Jesus walks with you. Yes, he is your closest companion. But you grow by recognizing and remember your union with Christ. You have been united to Christ. What happened to Christ physically happened to you spiritually. And so Paul often applies our union with Christ, this concept, in many, many different ways to our lives. Let me give you three ways we can apply that this morning. Number one, all the ethical commands, all the prohibitions, all the prescriptions can be summarized by one Pauline phrase. I might put it like this. Be who you are. Paul wants to say, be who you are. But the you Paul is talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. God does want you to be true to yourself. But our culture has flipped this on the head and got it completely, completely wrong. Our culture says, be true to your nature. You were born this way. Follow your natural feelings. No. The Scriptures tell us that by nature we are quarrelsome. By nature we are complainers. By nature we are sinful to the core. And I'm just talking about myself here, right? Paul says in Romans 6, Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. What he's really saying is something like this. Be who you are, but not by grace, but rather by nature. And so when you're in a conversation... Some might call it an argument with your spouse, your husband, your wife. And he or she says, you know, I'm just somebody who raises my voice. I'm somebody who worries. I'm somebody who complains. Just deal with it. What you should say theologically is, honey or mister, be who you are, but not by grace, not by nature, by grace. Right. And then you head out of the room really fast. Right. Don't you recognize you've been united to Christ and so no longer walk in the old sinful nature. Walk in your new identity. Be who you are, but not by your nature. By the new grace of God in your life. You have a new identity. You are in Christ. Second way we can apply this. Paul recognizes that spiritually we are very absent-minded. Yesterday, I, was, uh, I gave a call to Christine Maxwell. Are you here? And so I, I was trying to remember, like the first thing I said to Christine was, uh, have we talked yet? Have I already asked you these questions? Because I feel like, uh, and she goes, no, we've uh, just been playing phone tag. I was like, oh, okay, I haven't lost it yet, right? I haven't been that absent-minded. We forget who we are, what we're thinking about. This same is true of us spiritually. We forget who we are. But for Paul, change starts in the mind in reminding yourself who you are by grace. You've been united to Christ. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, set your what? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
In Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul soars to the height of his theology. All this meat and potatoes theology. And then he gets and starts in Romans chapter 12 to begin to apply this great theology. How does he say it? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind. Much the same idea occurs here in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above. Seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I have to admit that I've been very disappointed here preaching at Trinity Wellsprings Church. Because I've never gotten a live chicken after preaching here at Trinity in Africa. I would often get live chickens after my messages, especially in the rural villages. Now, when I would get the chicken, its hind legs would be all tied up. And I would have the privilege, after my hour-long sermon, to begin to go and put it into my car. And then, when I'm going from the rural villages back to the city, the, the chicken would often be going around all the car. I would practice safe driving, I assure you, when I lived in Africa. But after five, six, seven hours home, we would often cut the cord that tied the chicken's feet together. But because the chicken had been bound for so long, it would actually stay in the bound position. It wouldn't run freely about. All it had to do was remind its chicken self of its new identity. You are no longer bound. Go do frolicky things as a chicken. But no, it would be bound up. And I would say by sin, right? We too have little puny chicken brains. We forget who we are. Change starts in the mind as you recognize and remember your union with Christ. Don't have a chicken brain, right? That's the application here. (laughs) That wasn't in the notes, by the way. So anyway, uh, third way we can apply this great doctrine. Paul is telling the Colossian Christians, be stubborn. Be stubborn about the right thing. You and I, well, at least your spouse, right? Your spouse is stubborn about the wrong things, right? They want it their way. They want this way, their food, and their, their, the way they clean the house, the way you don't leave dirty laundry everywhere. What, what is that, right? My wife is stubborn, but in the wrong things. I'm stubborn, but in the wrong things. Paul says, embrace a stubborn Christocentrism in the Christian life. Your life is hidden With Christ and God. And so even though you may think that your identity is self-evident, that you know yourself so well, that you might be the most enlightened person in the room at any given moment, Paul says your life is actually hidden with Christ and God. And so, so when so many people in our culture wants to live their best version of their life, find their best self, what they are missing is that as they pursue Christ, that they will get more of their life, more of their true self of who they were really created to be. The joy is, as we we pursue Christ, we also find our true selves right in how we're meant to live and to be. And so every pathway to spiritual growth that does not have Christ at the center is a dead end. Every good idea involving spiritual growth that does not flow from our union with Christ is bound to fail. It has no power. 
Every good church program that aims to change people or lives eternally and significantly, but isn't Christ-centered is a hog wash. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, go pursue Christ. And when you do, you'll find your deepest self, who you're really made to be on this world. Because it's all to be found in Christ. You've been united to Him. And Christ to you. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank You for this great doctrine. Lord, if there's any confusion, Lord, that is my fault. It's not Your fault. It's not Paul's fault. And Father, we ask that You would give us the power to change, not through external conformity to rules and regulations, but inwardly leading to outward change. Change our hearts in Christ. Help us to remember often of who we are, that we may walk in this new life-changing identity that brings victory, that brings joy, brings the fullness of life. Now God's people said, Amen. Amen.